This has been a, a sermon series looking at the topic of sexuality through the lens of the resurrection. Uh, Easter Sunday was just a few weeks ago, and so we're coming at this topic through the conviction that Jesus Christ has made all things new, that new creation is available to all of us, that new creation is in us and available in our lives, but is also breaking into our entire world. Now, we just celebrated uh, uh, a Women and Mother's Day, and so if it feels a little incongruous to go into a sermon about sexuality, there it is. I just, I'm, I'm noticing it out loud with you this morning. And I'm doing that especially because I'm not preaching this morning. Uh, one of my favorite preachers in the world is with us, Ramelia Williams. And I don't say that lightly. She really is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite preachers. Um, someone who's been with us since the very beginning, a founding member of our church, graduate of North Park Seminary, um, and, and a, an amazing minister. And so I'm going to pray for, uh, for Ramelia and, uh, and for our time together in the Word. And then um, we'll open the word of God together. So pray with me, please, church. Living God, we thank you this morning for being so good to us. We thank you for being like uh, a mother hen who uh, gathers us to yourself, sheltering us, protecting us, giving up your own life for our salvation and safety. I thank you this morning for the word that you've given to this woman of God that she's heard from you, that you've given her enough, that everything that you've given to her will now be reinterpreted for the good of your people. So I pray that she would stand confidently in your word this morning, that she would recall in the deep places of her spirit your, your goodness to her throughout her life, that she would speak and preach with authority. And Spirit of God, we ask that you would interpret for us, not simply the words, but the actions that you desire, the healing that you desire, the transformation that you desire in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we welcome Ramelia, please? Good morning, or good morning, as Madea would say. So happy Mother's Day. To all the mothers in the room, and I am incredibly grateful to my pastor who has me preaching about sexuality on Mother's Day, okay? So I love that we are a multiracial, multicultural church because in that context, we don't intend to throw all of us into a melting pot and assimilate, but instead we intend to celebrate who each of us are in our diversity And so having said that, as an African-American woman in the black church, I am used to coming into church on Mother's Day with the mothers in their whites and their huge hats, and they are ready to celebrate and ready to go to dinner after. And so if you go to dinner with your mother or lunch this evening, and she asks you what was the context of what was preached in the Sunday morning service, just tell her we talked about Jesus, just (laughs) Jesus, talked about Jesus. I can promise you that I will say his name at least one time, and so you would not be lying. (laughs) So now that I have fully (laughs) made my pastor feel really bad, which was my intention, um, I can now continue. 
So like uh, Pastor David said, my name is Ramilia for uh, the guests in the room, I'm one of the um, charter members of the church and um, a year old graduate of North Park Theological Seminary. And um, I am currently in the call process, which is the really cute way of saying I'm a pastor without a job. And so, um, uh, and so these days, probably for the past year or so, Michelle was just saying you haven't heard me preach in a while. Um, and if I'm not here, I am preaching at a conference or a retreat or another church in the name of um, attempting to employ myself. So, um, so I am very grateful uh, to be with my church family this morning um, to be able to share the word with you on today. Sexuality for neighbor's good. Sexuality for neighbor's good. Uh, it kind of sounds like I'm going to preach about Christian orgies or something, but that is not, that is not what we're talking about today. So if you have any, um, uh, let me lower your expectations, and um, I will... Hopefully, you will understand better what it means um, to think about sexuality for neighbor's good. So as we think about um, sexuality, we've been biologically informed, legally informed, ethically informed, even both culturally um, informed and influenced. And so this sermon series is really about what does theology um, say about sexuality. And I am incredibly grateful um, for our church, to our church, for preaching this sermon series. Um, for me, myself, um, my parents never had a conversation with me ever, then or now, about the birds and the bees. And so everything I learned about sexuality was from friends and culture. And so I'm incredibly grateful be, to be able to um, receive uh, a theological construct as it relates to um, sexuality. And so I hope that you're able to gain that from this sermon series and then from this, uh, this sermon today. And so the sermon, is, the sermon series is not about answering yes or no questions about uh, sexuality, but our intention, I think, Pastor David, is to really give a, just a theological, larger, broader framework for understanding sexuality that we can then use to springboard into deeper conversations um, that we want to have about sexuality. Sexuality for neighbor's good. Um, and let me just say, uh, I don't see any of my babies in the sanctuary, but it's probably not um, conducive for, I will say, conversational uh, little ones. So just for your information. Um, sexuality for neighbor's good. Sexuality and the other. And so this sermon will focus specifically on sexuality and how our sexuality affects the other. So one of the frameworks that I'm going to use to talk about sexuality and the other um, are, are two books um, by two women that I don't remember their names, but Pastor David will put it on the, the website or have it in the bulletin next week, note to self. Um, uh, but these, these uh, women, Marva Dawn is one of them, these women talk about um, human sexuality from a position of 
naming um, two parts of our sexuality. So there's uh, genital sexuality, and this, there's this idea of social sexuality. So stay with me, because I, I, that term, uh, social sexuality, didn't rub me the right way either uh, the first time I read it. And it you know, really took a lot of reading to really um, understand her context, so, so stay with me. So there's genital sexuality, and then there is social sexuality, which I also kind of name as, as intimacy or, or fellowship. So sexuality is a fundamental longing of the soul that can be broken down into these two categories. And there are many, many ways to talk about sexuality. Um, but for our context today, this is where we're going to begin. So let's look at Genesis. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. Um, and so I'm going to less preach than I am going to teach. And so if you can um, pull out your Bibles in whatever form you have them this morning, um, that will be very helpful um, to follow along with me. So we're going to start in uh, Genesis, the second chapter. And Pastor Michelle talked a few weeks back uh, in her creation narrative series um, about the Gen- Genesis text and how they are two separate creation stories, but just two different perspectives around how um, creation was created. And so Genesis 2, 24-25 Uh, therefore, a man leaves his wife and his mother and clings to his... Did I say that right? Therefore, a man leaves his mother, his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. And so this, this uh, is what she defines as genital sexuality. And so this is where unity is established, where a family bond is created, where commitment is formed with the covenantal sign of the genital union. And so then there's a different sexuality, the social sexuality piece that I'll spend a little bit more time on. I I think we understand uh, genital sexuality pretty well. So let's turn to um, 1 Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And it talks about the creation of man and woman, but it reads a little differently. Verse 26, 1 and 26, then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created Adam, Adam, humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. Human beings, and this is what Dawn writes in her book, Marva Dawn, human beings are especially created to image God. And a significant part of that imaging is fellowship. And so in our relationships with each other, we model the community of the Trinity. And so this is kind of the second piece of our human sexuality, the genital sexuality, and then the social piece of that is the ways that we relate to one another, which is a reflection of the way that the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relate to to one another. And so social sexuality, I will um, probably bounce back and forth using the words intimacy and fellowship as well. 
Um, but with so with uh, social sexuality, there's a desire for depth and relational connection that is independent of the desire for genital sex. Certainly, intimacy can lead to genital sex in certain relationships, but I- intimacy is an end goal in itself as well when we think about our sexuality. Intimacy social sexuality, fellowship, is a connection between two individuals where they are deeply known and loved by one another. And for me, um, the highest expression of social sexuality or, or intimacy is probably my relationship with my spiritual director. Um, let me explain, explain spiritual direction. Spiritual direction is, is a, it's a prayer practice. Um, it's kind of like meeting with a pastoral counselor, but it's different um, in the sense that the spiritual director is not there to tell you what to do or to give you advice, but they hold a sacred presence and really are the voice of God for you. Um, it's a, situ- it's a, a, a relationship where they ask questions and you answer and you listen for uh, the voice of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so for me, um, the relationship with my spiritual director is one where I would use to mimic what this um, social sexuality type relation, where this part of my sexuality where I can see clearly um, uh, what this delineation is talking about. Uh, my relationship with my spiritual director is a relationship of non-judgment. It is a place where I bear my soul, the ugly parts of me and the beautiful parts of me. I come to these sessions ready to present a posture of openness and emotional nakedness before another human being. And in spite of what I bring, in spite of what God draws out of me in those conversations, I leave knowing that I am deeply loved by another human being and deeply loved by God. And this is an expression of intimacy, of social sexuality of fellowship, deep fellowship with another human being. And in this regard, I can also think of my connection with a great group of girlfriends I've known for probably more than two decades now. I don't want to date myself. Um, We went to college together. There are six of us. And though we all live in different time zones, we remain connected and committed to our friendship. And we know the deep joys and the deep pains of one another's stories and lives. And it really is that transparency and that acceptance that really draws us together um, as friends. Um, another expression of that uh, intimacy and social sexuality that does not involve an expression of genital sexuality. Um, and then another encounter happened this morning. Um, I actually walked in the building uh, today and I am just incredibly have an incredibly nervous anxious spirit for some reason this morning and I walked in I'm usually like a really good like poker face like you don't know what's going on inside and I walked in and John who normally always got something to say he always got something to say you know he's looking at me real crazy with a funny face and I just know something crazy finna come out his mouth so I just like turn away from him and then I look at Michelle And she has the same, like, perplexed look on her face, like, okay, what's going on with you? And so then I realized 
that the two of them, that we have relationship in such a way, in such an intimate way, that they can look at, could look at me without me expressing anything about, and I thought I was fully hiding it very well. And they easily looked at me and could look into my soul and say, no, it's something going on. It's, there's something going on here. And Marquita did the same thing uh, this morning. And so these are examples of, of relationships, of, of deep commitment and connection and intimacy and fellowship that have nothing to do with genital sex, but they are a part of our human sexuality. And it's a presentation of what we bring to the world when we move through the world as human beings. And being that this is a part of the creation narratives, it is part of the way that God imaged us as human beings, not only as those who exhibit a genital sexuality, but also those who exhibit intimacy and fellowship and a social sexuality as well. If we are created in the image of God, then these Genesis texts reveal that our sexuality is a reflection of the character of God. And I would say those characteristics as displayed in these two texts are covenant and community. Genital sexuality being a covenant and social sexuality being community. Genital sexuality is a signpost of God's way of covenanting with us, making unbreakable promises to us. And then social sexuality or intimacy is a picture of perfect fellowship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in a union that allows each of them to maintain their own essence. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but each maintains their own uniqueness, yet each is still God, a part of the fellowshipping community of the Trinity. This is a part of our human sexuality to exhibit both the genital sexuality and social sexuality covenant and community one flesh family bond and relational connection and so so sexuality is is a broad definition of our embodied beings of which sexual intercourse is only a part those, uh, for those sexually celibate beings in the room this morning, I, I believe that we've been lied to about intimacy. We have been told that the only place for us to bear our whole self is to the man or woman we marry or date, such that we conceal deeply intimate parts of our soul waiting for the big reveal to some poor unsuspecting spouse who is overwhelmed by the outpouring of a compacted soul. Where are there places of longing to be deeply known that rest in your soul? Longings for connection that you conceal, waiting for some unknown time in the distant future to connect and be known when there is community that God has made available before you community where you can be engaged in deeper ways, deeper ways than you allow yourself to be known because you believe you won't be fully loved or fully accepted. But to be create to be created in the image of God is to understand that sexuality is more than sex. 
desire for covenant and desire for community are both a part of our sexuality. And if you move through life only experiencing genital sexuality as the totality of your sexual being, then you are missing a part of what God imaged when you were created as a sexual being in the image of God. Genital sexuality and social sexuality, covenant and community, one flesh family bond and relational connection. We can interchange them. We can sometimes seek after genital sex when our deep longing is really for intimacy, to be known by another human being, to be seen purely with all my flaws and still be loved and accepted is to be loved with a social sexuality, an intimacy, a fellowship. You see, we were designed to live in community, and when we lack the intimacy of community, we can mistakenly believe that we really desire genital expression of sexuality as opposed to intimate connections with male and female human beings to affirm us, to support us, to love us, to remind us that we are connected to something outside of ourselves, to call us out when we want to act like everything is okay, to love us, people to love us and to know us. And so human sexuality is both genital sexuality and intimacy, and, and do we, and here's a question that our text wants, um, the, the direction that I want to go this morning is, do we distinguish which is our real goal when we engage with another? Do we distinguish what is our real goal when we engage with another? And so this is kind of the focus of what we will be um, really thinking about when we think about sexuality for neighbor's good. How does our genital sexuality affect the other from a social sexuality perspective? How does our genital sexuality affect the other from a social sexuality perspective? And to talk about this, I'm going to use a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, um, about three uh, years ago, I started a ministry at our church called Mending the Soul. And Mending the Soul is a ministry um, to uh, the abused, to women and men who have been um, sexually, emotionally, physically, verbally abused. And um, it's a 12-week uh, curriculum where women come together or men uh, in a community and they talk about the places where um, they have been abused, the ways that they have been disconnected from community as a result of that abuse. And so what I can tell you after um, sitting through many uh, groups and listening to the stories of many women whose genital sexuality has been abused, there's a common theme in these women's stories. And the theme is that the abuse of their genital sexuality marred their social sexuality. The abuse of their genital sexuality marred their 
sense of social sexuality. The, the abuse of her genital sexuality distorted her image of self, her image of God, and her image of those around her and her ability to connect or not to connect with them. But most importantly, it marred her ability to connect with others intimately, intimately, and not only in romantic relationships, but also social relationships, intimate relationships, friendships, any relationship that requires intimacy because of the abuse of genital sexuality. Social sexuality was marred. And so the point that I want us to see and hope that we can see this morning is that there's an interconnectedness, that, that we come, uh, that we come uh, uh, move through the world and we were created by God um, with a genital sexuality, but there's another piece of that um, that we miss and that we don't often talk about. There is such an interconnectedness between who we are as sexual beings and who we are as spiritual beings, an interconnectedness between our genital sexuality and our social sexuality. When genital sexuality is abused, it's not just a thing that happens in the moment, but there are repercussions for the abused person's soul. And so the next text that I want to look at is uh, the story of Tamar, which is found in Second um, Samuel. And if you could turn with me there, um, and I will also read it in your hearing. Second Samuel 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 22. Some time passed, David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And David's son, Amnon, fell in love with her. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother, Shemiah. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that that I might eat it, see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I might eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough and she kneaded it and she made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and set them out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber so that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to her brother Amnon. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, don't force me for such a thing. It should not be done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. 
As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you would be as one of the scoundrels in Israel. Now, therefore, I beg you, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. He raped her. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. Amnon said to her, get out. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other than you that you have done to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So his servant put her out and bolted the the door after her. But Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she was wearing. She put her her hand in her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar remained a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of these things, he became very angry. But he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither bad nor good, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister Tamar. A theologian, Jean Vanyar, said, Beneath the search for genital sexuality, is a longing to be loved. One seeks it where one can. Beneath the search for sexuality is a longing to be loved. One seeks it where one can. Now, I won't try to read anything into the text that is not there, but I do pose the question, what was Amnon really seeking? This is a question I ask us to ask of the text. And another question that comes from the text for me is, what was the nature of Amnon's relationship with his father David such that his own father didn't see what he was really up to? Where was the intimacy and the fellowship and the connection between father and son? And then Absalom's response to his sister's devastation was to tell her to be silent, to not speak about the matter. And this silencing of her pain disconnected her from socially intimate relationships. For the text says that she remained desolate and alone in her brother's home. And we never hear from her again. But we also see that this abuse of genital sexuality just didn't affect the two involved parties. It affected the entire family. Absalom harbored bitterness and hatred in his heart toward his brother. And eventually, if you keep reading the story, he killed him. 
David played favoritism with his children and didn't punish Amnon. The abuse of genital sexuality led led to the brokenness of intimacy in this family. It led to the brokenness of social sexuality. And so when we try and, and, and separate this idea of intimacy and social sexuality from a genital sexuality, it doesn't work. They're intertwined. And Pastor David, as he talked about sexuality, continuously says it's not a private thing. We think it's a private thing, but it has public repercussions. And so if we want to think even deeper about this saga between Amnon and his family, let's take a a look just one chapter back, 2 Samuel 11. 2 Samuel 11, and I'll read verses 1 through 5. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lied with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And we know the rest of the story. David had Bathsheba's husband killed because her husband had been a faithful servant. And David did not want to face him with his ugly sin. So what started as genital sexuality between two people, between David and Bathsheba, ended in a saga of betrayal and murder. Pursuit of genital sexuality revealed a lack of intimacy and deep connectedness between David and one of his most faithful servants. So much so that he would rather kill him and expose the ugliness, that that he would rather kill him than risk intimacy with him. And so think about that for a moment, that intimacy could be more difficult than genital sexuality, That, that, that the vulnerability of knowing one another deeply is more risque than genitally connecting sexually with another. Genital, sexuality, and intimacy, they are interlinked and fully connected. Sexuality, the the thing we see as such a personal matter, can manifest in such a way that it reveals how interconnected our expressions of human sexuality really are. The reality is that David's son, Amnon, has really just mimicked his father's behavior only a little closer to home. 
from Bathsheba to Tamar, the brokenness of David's sexuality affected his family. And so we think about sexuality as a private matter, but sexuality really is, as foolish as it sounds, it really is a communal matter. And thus, we can talk about sexuality for neighbor's good and not be talking about Christian orgies, right? So now, okay, I hope you're understanding a little bit better sexuality for neighbor's good and what those implications are. And, and as I thought about, as I thought about David's sexuality affecting the generations of his family, this reality of the generational nature of imprints left by human sexuality, it caused me to think about the generations of African-American women affected by the rape of their enslaved ancestors at the hands of slave masters. The, the, the rape of African women slaves, the commodification of the sexuality of the bodies of enslaved Africans, the denial of slaveholders' wives that their husbands were raping the slaves, has led to a historical image of black women as hypersexual sexual objects. And this is an image still being pervaded in our culture today today. Generations, generations are affected by the implications of our genital sexuality. Quick story, I don't get my nails done often, but I had gone to get my nails uh, done for graduation, and I went to a shop near here, um, and in uh, this shop, um, this gentleman was a gentleman from uh, Vietnam, and he had been trained in his hometown how to um, uh, you know, cosmetology, how to do nails and feet and all this kind of thing. And so he had come to the States and was brought over by some family members, and, and he works here in the States now. This is a person who grew up in Vietnam of Vietnamese descent. And he, um, previous to coming to Chicago, had worked in the same line of work in um, Miami, Florida. And I... Uh, Sat down in his booth and really nice guy, did my pedicure. And by the time we got to the manicure, like we're best buddies. We're laughing it up, chatting it up, talking. And this man says the most interesting thing to me. It made me want to slap him. Um, he said to me, I can't remember exactly how the conversation flowed, but he was referring to um, uh, working um, in Miami and wanting to open his own um, nail shop and was talking about industries that would be maybe more um, financially worthwhile for him. And anyway, the conversation continued and he was talking about strip clubs and asked me if I would work in his club. I was infuriated infuriated at the reality that this man, born and raised in Vietnam, in another country, could have a perception about my sexuality because of the color of my skin. 
I was infuriated. But, but the reality of the effect of the commodification of the sexuality of a generation of people and the ways that it, the ways of injustice that it proliferates upon persons with black skin is mind-boggling to me. The abuse of genital sexuality of a nation of people has caused a marring of social image and perception. And then our final text, if you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. Sexuality for neighbor's good. The text that Pastor David is using for uh, this sermon series on sexuality is 1 Corinthians 7. And I am always interested uh, in what the text before and after the text that you're studying have to say about the text that you are studying. And so the, the text that I want us to look at is a 1 Corinthians 5. Um, which is a, a text that speaks to the nature of what the main text that we have been studying talks about. And so I will read in our hearing 1 Corinthians 5. I'll read verses 1 through 5 and then 9 through 13, 13. And this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not even found among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife, And you are arrogant. Should you not rather have mourned so that he who has done this would have been removed from among you? For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And drop down to verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or the idolaters, since you would then need to go completely out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister, who is sexually immoral or greedy, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. Do not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging those outside? Is it not those who are inside that you are to judge? God will judge those outside. You drive out the wicked person from among you. What I found really interesting in this text is that here is a person who is committing this sexual sin, but Paul met at the church. The, the, the tongue lashing for this man's sexual sin is coming to the church. And so when we think about human sexuality, when we think about sexuality for neighbor's good, that there's social sexuality and genital sexuality, we realize that 
God judges the community for the sexual sin of the community. We have a responsibility to one another in this regard. Here's the question Paul is answering in these letters written to the Corinthian church. What does it mean to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ? This, this is what Paul is asking. And Paul's answers in this text reveal that it is not a compartmentalized answer, but that faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ requires a holistic yes. A yes and a man that includes the reality of your sexual being. You don't fully live out the gospel when you serve God only intellectually. I, can, I know the scriptures. I can quote them. Only empathetically. I sit with my brother in love. I went to the hospital when your mama was sick. Only legalistically, you going to hell because you committed so-and-so sin. Only ethically, only culturally, I go to church because it's Sunday and it's Mother's Day. Uh, not, not only from a, a social justice perspective, I marched with my brothers and sisters. But the presence of the living God comes to judge us today about how our sexuality is also subject to the gospel of Jesus Christ for our neighbor's good. It is not one of these alone, but God calls us to be faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ in a more holistic manner that includes our sexual being and the way that it impacts those around us. Paul is not calling out the sinners, but he is tongue lashing the whole congregation. Paul is showing that their behavior is affecting the witness of the whole church. The judgment against sexually immoral persons is not for those outside of the church. This was a word that was coming to those inside the church. This is a judgment for you and for I. Paul is reprimanding them because they are indifferent to the reports of immorality in the ranks of the church. They was like, what they got to do with me? That man living with his daddy wife in a house. I ain't got nothing to do with that. But the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to say, if he is in your Christian community, you do. That you are your brother's keeper and you are your sister's keeper. This kind of behavior, if I'm only talking to one person in the congregation this morning, this kind of behavior affects the whole community. David committed a sexual sin with Bathsheba and it affected his whole family. Amnon committed the same sin against his sister and it affected the whole family. Slave masters committed the sin against my ancestors and I'm still paying the price. Sexual sin affects the community. Don't look over there and judge out there. Judge those in here. Look in the mirror. The the eternal judgment will not rest only on the head of the evildoer, but it will also rest on the community that failed to speak up about what it saw, about the lack of flourishing of social sexuality of some of its members because you didn't want to speak. Because you want Tamar to be silent (laughs) and to just make it go away. The command to correct the problem is not only given to the sinner, but the entire congregation. 
which is responsible for dealing with the problem. Paul is not blaming the sinner, but the people around the sinner who must have known what was going on, but chose to ignore it and claim it wasn't their problem. This was an indictment of the community, not the individual. I was going to make a reference to Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. And then I was like, our church members are kind of young. So, but I'll just go for it. Okay. Your laughter tells me you do know. Okay. So, (laughs) um, so, so it, it, it would be about 15 years before you would hear the voice of Monica Lewinsky again after, um, the debacle in the White House is, is, is what I'll call it. Um, before a private matter of sexuality between a man and a woman that rocked the nation, it would be 15 years before she were publicly fit again, were, was fit to speak again publicly. And she actually did a very good um, TED Talk about her mental anguish and, and cyberbullying. Uh, and Monica Lewinsky, she participated, but but the man who was all other, the man was involved. He was older. He was in a place of authority over her as her boss. He misused his authority for personal uh, sexual gain. And so, whether you think right or wrong, love or hate Bill Clinton, whatever your personal opinion of of Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky, I think we can all agree that their personal sexuality literally affected a nation of people. Their genital sexuality affected the social sexuality of a nation of people. Their personal sexual affair almost caused a president to be impeached. Not to mention the anguish it caused his wife and family and Monica Lewinsky's family, who then um, was very suicidal and experienced a lot of mental anguish as a result of what happened after. And so this morning, I, I, I just come to say to us as a community that, that these types of sins are sins of not just the one who has sinned, not just the one who have been caught in the act, but it is an indictment of the community. And so the question that I, I come to ask us this morning is, is there someone in your life that you are not holding accountable for the sin of their lustful, immoral, shameless sexuality and the ways that it is having an effect on a beloved son or daughter of God. And that is a question, and I'm going to stop for a moment because I want us to think about it. And and, and this message comes, now I, I believe that when I speak, prophetically that the words that I speak are not words that you are hearing for the first time, but they are words that God has been dealing with you in your own heart. And just now in this moment, I can think of a very a situation in my own life that I've been avoiding probably for two years uh, of someone who has named to me a uh, sexual sin that is... Um, wreaking havoc in her life. And I believe she spoke it to me because she knew the influence that I have on the person um, who is, is doing this sin against her. 
And so this comes even as a conviction to me right now in this moment of a, of a way that, that, that God has given me. And here's what Paul was saying to the church. I have given you spiritual authority to judge the, wit, the wickedness in the community. I have given you the spiritual authority to judge it and to call it out. And if you don't judge it and you don't call it out, the sin and the blood are on your hand and your head also because they are your brother and your sister. And so I ask you, where in your life is God calling you to be accountable, to stand up, to speak, to advocate for a victim who has been silenced? There is a call for us to judge one another in this area. And this letter is sent to the church as pastoral counsel for issues that have come up in the church. And could this maybe even be encouragement for you to find a pastor or a community group member to talk to about your own issues of sexuality? Because I hope that if if you don't remember anything else that has been talked about in this sermon series, I pray that you come to realize that your sexuality is part of your spirituality. That human sexuality is a part of who you are, whether you try to deny it or hide it or not speak about it. It is a part of who you are because it's the way God made you. It's the way that you show up in the world as a gendered being, as a sexual being. It's a part of how you function spiritually. And so this is a call to you in the same way that it was a pastoral call to the Corinthian church. Here's my conclusion, and then I'm going to ask us to just enter a moment of silence that I will lead us in. Corinth was a large city. It it was the capital of Rome with various ethnic, cultural, and religious influences abounding in the city. And there in this church were mostly non-Jewish, non-circumcised folk in this congregation. So these were the the common folk that likely came to the church with various interpretations about sexuality because they they were Gentiles. And as these Gentiles reflected on their past pagan lifestyles and the previous, previous ways they viewed sexuality, Paul is asking them to consider how their thoughts and practices line up with or turn them away from God. And so I offer us the same question this morning. There are thoughts, perceptions, views, expectations that you have of your sexuality that have been given to you by the world, by our culture. And if you take those thoughts and perceptions and line them up with your Christian understanding and context, where are their points of discrepancy? And that's the way that I am leading us to pray in this morning. And so now if you can just enter a posture of silence. I'm just going to lead us into a moment of silence and ask some questions that I want you to just answer in your own heart, in your own being. What does it mean to be a sexual being? What does it mean to be a sexual being?
And now, what does it mean to be a sexual being who is seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places, desiring to love our neighbor well? What does it mean to be a sexual being who is seated with Jesus Christ in heavenly places, desiring to love our neighbor well? In these next moments, I'm going to ask you that if there are places in your heart where you need to ask forgiveness for ways that you have abused another's image of self as a beloved creation of God, marring their sense of social sexuality, their sense of intimacy, their ability to form intimate relationships with others where trust is necessary, If there is a place in your life, in your heart, where you need to ask for forgiveness for marring someone else's sense of intimacy, connection, and social sexuality because of the ways that you interacted with them from a genital sexual perspective, here's the space to do that now. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, asking God to not condemn us, but to see us through the prism of Christ's blood. Jesus desires to be the mediator in our relationships, whether through genital sexuality or social sexuality or intimacy or fellowship. Can we see others the way Jesus sees them with compassion and desire to be in deep fellowship with other human beings? And now, God, we ask that you would take these words that we have heard and we pray that you would seal them in our hearts, O God. Lord, we ask your forgiveness right now for the ways that we have marred the sense of intimacy, the way, the sense of intimacy of another, the way that they come to the world, both as a genital sexual being and, in, and, and a social sexual being. God, forgive us for the ways that our hands have played a part in abusing the sense of social sexuality of another being. And God, if it wasn't necessarily our genital sexuality that abused them, God, forgive us for the times when we have not spoken up, where we see and we knew it was happening, and we knew the marring that was potentially occurring, but we were silent. We, we like Absalom's, uh, like, like Tamar's brother Absalom, Just ask him or her to be silent. We just hoped it would go away. God, forgive us. Be our mediator. Judge not just 
the evildoer among us, O God. But judge each of us, for you have called us to be in fellowship. You have called us to be connected as you are connected, Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Trinity. Help us to live out the holistic humanity that you image in the fellowship of the Trinity. God, let us see the Trinity and see how we are called to experience and to express our sexuality for neighbor's good. And so this week, God, convict us, but love us, O oh God, in the ways that you've called us to be fully loved intimately in fellowship with you and with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we thank Ramelia this morning? Now you know why she's one of my favorite preachers. Because you did some work. Uh, here's kind of the, my, my only follow-up is, uh, particularly given um, Ramelia's reminder of the communal context of our sexuality, if there's any point in you of conviction uh, or of desperation um, or of confession or of a desire for healing, that is not for you to walk out today holding to yourself. Amen? Am I right in saying that that would have missed the entire point of your sermon? So find Romelia after the service, myself, Pastor Michelle, someone you know here in the church, um, and just ask for some time for prayer, for conversation, for follow-up. Um, if you need um, more follow-up beyond that or more expertise beyond what we have available, we have those connections and we will uh, make sure that that happens today. But do not walk away from here in any sense of loneliness or isolation. Can we say amen to that? That is not the gift and the call of God for, for our lives. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward now to receive our offering, and then we get to worship just a little bit more before fighting lines for Mother's Day lunches, those of you who are brave enough to do that. Let's pray. So again, Spirit of God, confirm and seal the word that has been spoken today. We thank you for it. We pray that our hearts would be very good soil today. That the seed that has been scattered would find nurture and a nourishing place to grow, to bear fruit of repentance, to bear fruit of healing, to bear fruit of restoration, of reconciliation to bear the fruit of a flourishing that you created us for within a fellowship of women and men who love you and who are being transformed by you. I pray now that you receive these tithes and offerings, that we would give generously those who cannot give today, that they would know your favor and your generosity in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll pass the, um, the offering basket now. And after it's gone by, if you could stand, please, as we worship together.
Amen. Amen. Again, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. And just remember, we talked about Jesus, okay? Just talked about Jesus when your mama asked. We talked about Jesus. Okay, I'm going to just send us out uh, with, um, with Paul's words to the Corinthian church. And Paul said, I am not responsible. This is the message version. I am not responsible for what the outsiders do. But don't we have some responsibility for those within our community of believers? God decides on the outsiders, but we need to decide when our brothers and sisters are out of line and if necessary, clean house. And so I say, go with God this week on the wings of love. God, carry us out this week on the wings of your love, but God, carry us out not individually, but collectively, reminding us, oh God, that you have called us to be in community, that we might love and support and have a way of having intimate connection with one another that that mimics your connection, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God, use us to be intimate lovers of one another. And I thank you, God, and love you, God, for each and every individual in this congregation that you have sent to love me that way. God, let us be thankful and grateful this week for those people that you have sent to be in intimate connection with us. And let us celebrate that today, starting with our mothers and those who represent mothers to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.